Here we are. Sorry? No need, no need for a chumash today. No need for a chumash today. So, what do you have in front of you? What we have in front of you is a long piece from the Kliyakar. The Kliyakar lived a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, he was a student of the Maharal of Prague. The Maharal of Prague, we studied some of his works earlier. And the Kliyakar over here does a phenomenal favor for all of us because he collects a lot of information about a very, very, very fundamental question that is discussed by virtually every single one of the Jewish um, philosophers, all Jewish thinkers, all of the great scholars we've had throughout the ages. And what's that question? The question is as follows. In the second of this week's two partios, this week we're, we're going to read Bahar and Bichukosai. Bichukosai begins, in Bichukosai Telechu, if you go within my statutes, you follow my laws, etc., etc., what's going to happen? What's the reward? Anyone? What follows? More or less? Knowing the words? What? Yeah, oh, we have the words too. Very good. Okay, so it's going to rain. It's going to, there's going to be produce. Your children are, you're going to have children. They're going to be all these amazing blessings. The good life. The good life. Okay? And if you don't, all those things will not be there. What's the problem? What's missing from these blessings that were given for doing the mitzvos? What's missing? It tells you you're going to have great produce. The economy is going to take off. You're going to be living securely. You're going to have success at home. What's missing? If someone were to tell you what happens when you do mitzvos, what is, where's your reward for those mitzvos? Spiritual. Spiritual reward. Olam haba, right? It's going to be good for your neshama. It's going to be good for you in Gan Eden. And then olam haba for all those you remember the class we went through at all those later stages. But the typical, the reward that we think of from a spiritual perspective is not of this world, right? Uh, So what in the world is going on over here? First of all, there is no, there, the, you know, there's, there's mention of all these physical rewards. No one should tell you, anyone who tells you, you do mitzvos and you're going to get these physical rewards, you have to be careful because I don't, you know, that's not, you know, there, there's some discussion about that by tzedakah, but for the most part, we don't believe that. We don't say like, hey, God, I did a mitzvah this morning. Like, what's going on? Why aren't you, you know, being, that doesn't work that way. We do mitzvos, it, change, it transforms our neshama. It transforms who we are. And when our body, our soul, depart, when our soul departs our body, we'll have an incredible proximity to Hashem because our soul was so incredibly developed by all the mitzvos that we did. That's what we believe. We don't believe, we, this notion of Hashem, therefore going to do all these physical things, A, you know, they're explicit statements in the, in, in the Gemara, which says, Schar almo leka. There is no reward in this world, no physical reward in this no reward in this world. And second, what's a glaring omission is Olam Haba. There is no mention in this entire, and not just this passage, right? There's a passage we read every day. Uh, we say in Shema, V'hayim Shema If you listen to my mitzvot, which I command you, you'll go to Gan Eden. doesn't say that. What does it say? I'm going to give you rain. I'm going to make things good, right? It's all about the physical world. Where in the world is any mention of the world to come? It's very problematic. It's very challenging. And virtually throughout the entire Torah, you follow the same pattern. It's a very serious question. So serious that there are uh, academics, people, I'm not, 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 not uh, religious uh, thinkers, but, but some have been led to believe and said, you know, Judaism doesn't really believe. Really, traditional Judaism doesn't really believe in Olam Haba doesn't really believe in the existence of a soul. It, does, it rejects all that. Why? There's no mention of it. They, they basically, the evidence is in the Torah Shabbat in the written Torah. There's no evidence of that. And therefore, they reject the notion entirely. Okay? Now, not the time and place to, to address that question fully, um, their, their claim, but I just want to mention a couple of points before we jump into the piece we have in front of us. And that is that, uh, first of all, there are mentions in the Torah about a world to come. Uh, they are, some of them are a little bit subtle, uh, but there's certainly allusions. One of the places where it's most explicit, one of the places where it's most explicit is in the book of Daniel. Daniel is not the most easy book to get through, but, but we know what it's saying. We know what it means. And basically there it talks about a world to come. It talks about uh, re- reward for the soul. It talks about all these things. And that addresses at least, you know, the, the, the main 
belief, heretical belief. The main heretical belief in the world out there is that Judaism incorporated a notion of the world to come due to Hellenistic influences. That's when it came about. That, that's their claim that, that the Greeks believed in this and therefore Judaism once during the whole period of time when we really in some ways, you know, fought but ultimately merged a lot of Hellenistic ideas into, into our culture at least, um, that, that's where it came from. The book of Daniel was written before that time. So first and foremost, it, it's false. It's not, an, it's not an accurate portrayal. The book of Daniel is the most explicit. There are a number of places where it does allude pretty clearly to a, a world to come, to, to an existence of an ashama, um, even though it doesn't say it always so explicitly. But the notion that it came from some Greek influence is incorrect. Um, it, we, we do have sources that speak about this more explicitly, an Olam Haba, uh, at least in the book of Daniel, most explicitly. Uh, the other point I would mention, which is just odd, is that if it really is some outside influence that made Olam Haba part of our beliefs, it's interesting that our sages, you know, they, they, they have a Mishnah. Uh, there's a Mishnah, the end of Sanhedrin, which speaks about, uh, you know, some of the core beliefs. This Mishnah is ultimately becomes the blueprint for the Rambam to write his 13 Ikarim, the 13 principles of faith. Okay, the Rambam takes this Mishnah in Sanhedrin and basically reformulates it more or less and says that these, these, if you don't believe in these things, you, know, uh, you don't believe in anything. And, and there's a lot of debate, you should know, about the Rambam's list of 13. Okay, but there's one, which about how he formulates it, etc. There's one which everyone agrees to, and that is the notion of Olam Haba. The notion of reward and punishment being beyond this world. It is a core belief to the point that the Mishnah says if you don't believe it, then like, the worst punishments, your soul gets cut off, etc., etc., and so it's, it's hard to understand if it really truly is, as the critics and heretics would say, that it came about at a later point. It's interesting, you know, it's interesting that Chazal or sages doubled down on this idea. It wasn't just that it'd be like, kind of like slipped in. This became such a core belief, right? So clearly it would seem, you know, that, that this was not something which it seems, I would say, that it wasn't something which came about through the back door and they just felt like they had to be more aligned with the Greeks and that's why they did it. It became a fundamental belief of ours. Okay, so again, we're not going to focus on the, that critique, but the question, which I think we all have to answer, is why, again, the entire parsha virtually is talking about reward and punishments in the physical world, and there's no mention of spiritual reward and punishments. So what I'd like to do today, a little bit different than last week, and, and the perk of having a parsha here is that each week could be a little bit of a different style. Bear with me, if that works for you. Okay. Um, and what I'd like to do today, it's such a fundamental question, um, and so I'd really like to, to do a deep dive into that question. What in the world is going on? Why is there no mention, no explicit mention, in this week's parsha and other parshios about the world to come? Okay, so the Kliyakar, uh, writing again a couple of hundred years ago, what he does for us is he collects, uh, what is it, seven, uh, seven different views from all the great commentators, from all the great thinkers addressing this question. Okay, with that, let's jump in, let's read it together. Um, I'm going to read it in the Hebrew, there's a translation, it's a loose translation that I, that I put together on, uh, under it, um, and we'll unpack each one. So Dasa Achas, the first approach, Hudasa Rambam is the approach of Maimonides, the Rambam. Shekol Elu Hayudim Enan Iker Haschar that all of these promises are not the main reward. And all the bad and good which is mentioned in this parsha, meaning our, this week's parsha, they are completely focused on removing impediments alone. What he means to say, that if you keep my mitzvos, God saying, if you keep my mitzvos, asir mimcha kolmonim, I will remove from you all things that get in the way, all things that would impede your mitzvah observance. 
Kimalchamos, like war, v'chalayim, and, and, and troops attacking you, v'rav, and, and famine, v'yagon, and, uh, and, and sorrow, ba'ofen, in a way, shetucha lavodus Hashem, below shumonea, in a way that you could serve God without any impediments. Aval ikar haschar, the main reward, that of the world to come, eno nizgar kan, is not, let's, 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 let's pause before we see the next piece. So first and foremost, what the Ramam is saying is that the reward and punishment mentioned in this week's Parsha is not about ultimate reward. It's about the removal of impediments. The way I, I conceptualize it is as follows. If you ever worked for a business, okay, and let, I'll give you a, a story, okay? Some guy, Mark, we'll call him, uh, works for a certain business and he's sent to LA to go work on closing some deal. Okay, so he sent. He lives in Baltimore, boring old Baltimore. He sent to exciting uh, Los Angeles. He gets a flight to Los Angeles. They put him in first class, business class, whatever it is, because you know he's a chashiv guy. They put him in business. He flies out to Los Angeles in business class, and then he's given a car rental, a nice car. You know, he has to show up at these different places, and he's put up in a nice hotel. He's put up at the Hilton over there, and and he, of course they pay for his meals. Mark happens to be Jewish, expensive meals. LA has nice some nice food, good restaurants. Yeah, whatever you need, you take care of those meals. And while he's there, of course, he spends two weeks there working with the clients, and ultimately, you know, closes the deal that they're working on. Fantastic. Flies back home, comes to the main office in downtown Baltimore and shows up to the boss and says, you know, okay, I, uh, we closed the deal. I'm supposed to get my cut. I'm supposed to get my, you know, the way it's structured is he gets his, uh, his uh, you know, he gets his reward from, you know, he gets his cut from, from, from the deal. And the boss says, cut? <laughs> I flew you out to Los Angeles free of charge, right? I paid for your beautiful car. I paid for your meals. You stayed at a beautiful place. You know how much that cost? You don't get any reward, right? Imagine that conversation, right? No, that's ridiculous, right? Because all of those costs were expenses, right? That is taken from your expense account. In order for him to do his job properly, he couldn't sleep on the streets. He couldn't walk to Los Angeles. He couldn't, you know, show up without having a meal, right? So obviously he needed those expenses to ensure, to enable him to make the deal, right? So the, you can't say, well, okay, fine, I'll give you your, your cut, but I'm going to take out off all the expenses. No, no, no. The expenses are a totally separate account. In order for you to do what you need to do, I take, the boss takes care of your expenses. That's separate than your pay. That's what the Ravam is saying over here. Reward, olam haba. These partios, you know what they're talking about? They're talking about expenses. God, if we, God gives us a deal. If you start doing a good job, I'm going to make it easier for you to do the good job. Not as a reward. Not as a reward, but if you go along, if you go along the right path, I'm going to remove some of the stuff from before you. I'm going to make the world a little bit more peaceful. So you won't be running like they are right now in Israel into, into, into bomb shelters, right? I'm going to go ahead and make sure that you're living a little more comfortably so you're not starving because if you're starving, you can't serve God properly, right? I'm going to remove these impediments, not the reward, but as a way of enabling you to do mitzvahs. That's what's being discussed here, more or less what I would call in modern terms, the expense account. Nice, beautiful approach. Now, what it doesn't address, okay, fine. So it's the expenses, but why doesn't God mention, right? So what's mentioned is expenses, not reward. So why not mention reward? And that, the Ramah now addresses that second point. Let's keep on reading. He says, The main reward, that of Olam Haba, is not mentioned here. Why? So we serve God, Lishma. Lishma is a hard word to, to translate properly, but Lishma means for the right reason, not for self-serving purposes, right? As a child, you know, for, for my children, you know, my, 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 my children, they get like incentives. My son in, in TA, they give him like incentives out of the wazoo. You know, you learn this, you get this candy. You learn this, you get this slice of pizza. Fine, it works. He's a, he's a kid, right? But at one point, if the only reason you are, you know, coming to shul is that you get like a ticket, then something's wrong, right? And the only reason you're, you're coming to a class is so that someone pats you on the back and gives you something, there's something wrong. 
Now, so God wants us to serve him for the right reason. The right reason is because it's the right thing to do. We serve Hashem, not al-menas l'kabel schar, as the mission of Avos says, not for the sake of getting reward. We serve God because God cares about us. He loves us. He tells us to do this. We, we do it because, because God asked me to do it. And therefore, I do it for that reason. Not so that, oh, when I get to Olam Haba, it's going to be great for me. That's, that's, that's very, that's childish. And therefore, the Torah only focuses on expenses, doesn't explicitly talk about reward, to remind us to frame our mitzvah observance as one of, it's not about reward, it's about Hashem asking me to do so, that's why I'm doing it. And therefore, it suggests the Rambam, no explicit mention of Olam Haba for that reason. Right? And that, let's just finish the words. Not because of the reward, or for the sake of punishment. Okay, I'm a Sefer Amada, and the Rambam elaborates about this um, in, in, his, in his work on, on Shuva. Okay, so fine, that's approach number one. Approach number one is the reward and punishment that we're reading in this week's Parsha is not about reward and punishment. It's about expenses. It's about impediments. Point number two is that... Um, is that the reason reward and punishment is not mentioned explicitly in the Torah is God does not want us to serve him for some candy. Candy's great. I love it. But if I'm serving God for candy, then there's something wrong over here. That's not the goal. The goal, the aspiration is to serve God lishma. Right? I, I, a person is in a relationship. You serve, you're in the relationship so that someone else, you know, I, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's pathetic, right? I mean, that's, that's okay for a child. But, but as we get older, as we, we mature, we're in, rela- we're in it because we're in it, right? I don't need to justify because of the, what's going to help me. That, that's, that's very childish and immature. God wants, to ser- wants us to serve him in an ideal fashion. Okay? Approach number one, good. Let's keep on reading. Hadassah Shnia, okay? The second approach, Hudas Rava. This is the approach of the Ibn Ezra. Okay, he writes this in Parsha Zinu. This is a quote. According to my understanding, this is the Ibn Ezra speaking. Okay, the Ibn Ezra was one of the great medieval commentators. The Torah was given to the masses and not to the unique ones alone. Okay, so basically his first point that he's making is that, and this is a very important principle that the, that the Ibn Ezra uh, assumes, and that is that the Torah is written to be understood by Hamon Am, the masses. Now, you and I, we live in a pretty educated time and place. You know, for all the talk about uh, all the, you know, back in Europe, everyone was sitting and learning all day. Eh, not, 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 not so clear, right? Certainly, I would say for, for, for the women in the room, your education today, I don't care how limited you think your education is, was likely far, far, far more superior to the average woman in the not so ancient couple, maybe a hundred years ago. Nowhere close. Nowhere close. Uh, the world has changed. So we, we're, we're living in a world where we're far more sophisticated. All of us are far more sophisticated, far more knowledgeable. Let's pretend we lived in, I don't know, the 1600s, okay? Just to be safe, okay? How knowledgeable was the average person, man, woman? Not so knowledgeable. They may have been very devout, may have been very pious, but not so knowledgeable, not so sophisticated. The Ibn Ezra's assumption and approach to explaining all of the Torah is that the Torah was written to be understood by all. He does this often, sometimes when there is a passage which could only be, un- which typically is understood in a very esoteric fashion, and that's the way our sages, Chazal, assume it's explained. That, that's how they approach it. The Ben Ezra gives an alternative approach, one which is understandable to, to anyone. He believes, his, his, philo- his, his belief is that the Torah must be understood by all. That's an approach he takes to all of his interpretation of the Torah. So he says like this, without understanding, the olam haba, the notion of a world to come, Okay, what is the notion of the world to come? What, what is the world to come? Where we, we spend a whole class on this, you know, classes, a series of classes on this. But Olam Abba, you know, according to many, is, is some re- reality where our soul exists, our body exists, but our body is very secondary to our soul, and there is reward. Reward not in the physical sense, but there's reward about proximity to God. And somehow we, we grow in our closeness to God, and that is incredibly pleasurable. Are these words, you know, we can... 
understand it, but do we really understand what that means? It's so foreign to us. Like, okay, we, we get it, but we don't really get it. So he says, the Olam Haba, Leyavinu Echad Mini Aleph. He says, not one of a thousand, maybe one in a thousand people really gets it. Ki Omeku, Amoku, it's deep. Okay, vidaito. So I can show that's that's the end of the quote. Vidaito, and his his underst- what he means by that. He says because it's difficult to portray to 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 uh, to to paint a picture of this reward, the reward of the world to come. Because a physical being, i.e., me and you, will struggle to understand something so spiritual. Therefore, the Torah does not list it because it's too deep for most of us to understand. So he's addressing the second question only. He's not addressing what our Parsha is all about, but he's saying, you know why Olam Haba is not mentioned in the Parsha? It's too hard for most of us to understand. And therefore, the Torah, which is meant to be a book of, of instruction to everyone, will only choose to write things that could be understood by everyone. Olam Haba is not on that list. Okay. I don't know if that sits as well with all of us looking around, but okay, that's Ibn Ezra's approach. Let's go a little further. Hadas Hashlishis, the third approach. Hurdas Rabbeinu Bechaya Zaken. Okay, Azichru Harava Parsha Zinu Venatul Varav Lezvarav. Okay, Vegamar Ramban Natul Das Zuvu. Okay, so this is the approach from Rabbeinu Bechaya as well as uh, as well as the Ramban, and they say like this: Shekol Hayu Udim Shebetora Him Lemalim and Hateva. Okay, you have to listen closely to this one. All promises in the Torah are above nature, or what I would say is defy nature. She'ein zedavar TV. Okay, so w- w- let's pause right here. He says, if the Torah promises us something, it has to be telling us something that we wouldn't otherwise intuit or assume on our own. Okay? Why would the Torah write something? You know, that's the point, by the way. This is a, an important principle. You know, if the Torah says, you know, you shouldn't kill, you know, You'd have to ask yourself, like, that's so, that would seem presumably be obvious, right? Don't steal. Like, most cultures have that, uh, you know, principle. So what is the Torah doing something unique when it teaches us that? And, you know, there are many, you know, great, great scholars who spend time trying to figure out. When the Torah talks about murder, it does it in a way that it has to be adding something that we wouldn't otherwise understand, right? The Torah is not going to say the obvious. There's no need for the Torah to say the obvious, okay? So that's principle number one. If the Torah says something, it seems obvious to you. Right? Reiki mikem. It's, uh, it's empty from you. In other words, you have to dig deeper. You have to dig deeper. There must be something deeper the Torah is coming to tell you. And so similarly, when the Torah, when God gives us a promise, he's not going to tell us, promise us something which is obvious. Okay? Instead, it has to be something which is not obvious. Okay? She'ein um, TV, for example, it's not natural. She'yerdu gishamim bizman she'osna mitzvos. Okay? It's not natural to assume that if we do mitzvos, it's going to rain. Right? No one would assume like, that based on whatever science, whatever you know in the world, if I do mitzvahs, it's going to rain? That, that, really? Who says? Right? That, that's bizarre. That's crazy. That's wild. That's unbelievable. Right? And that rain would stop when we stop doing mitzvahs. If I were to tell you that here in Baltimore, it's going to be a nice day. We'll have, uh, you know, weather like today if you all do mitzvahs. If you don't do mitzvahs, it's going to be one of those dreadfully hot, muggy Baltimore days where it's terribly rainy. That's cra- I mean, that would be wild. That's a wild thing to say. That, that, that's, that defies logic, right? Amnam, however, okay, and here this, he, says, he flips the whole question on its head. He says like this, He says the notion of the soul going back to its roots, to where it, the stone that it was hewn from. In other words, our soul, what do we say about our soul? We believe our soul, our neshama, comes from God. Okay, so if you believe in a soul, the notion that a soul right, is on this earth, that's the logic-defying reality, that the soul could even be down here. But after death, is it 
a jump? Is it, is, it, is it novel to say that our soul will return to where it's from? It makes a lot of sense. The soul is spiritual. It doesn't belong here. The fact that it's here is what's crazy. The fact that our soul goes back to God, that makes a ton of sense, right? This is logical. This makes sense. This is not wondrous. Um, and since the Torah does say explicitly that a person who sins, their soul will be cut off, what does it mean will be cut off? Meaning our soul right now, your soul, if you can imagine it for a second, is basically comes from God. It comes from heaven, so to speak. And it's almost like on a rubber band down to earth. When we die, goes right back. Kares, what is kares? Kares literally means to be cut off. So certain mitzvot, certain averos, that if we perform those averos or we don't fulfill certain mitzvot, kares means that God, so to speak, snaps the string and it never goes back. Right? So the Torah says explicitly there's something called kares, that your soul will be cut off. Okay? Which implies, yeshlil mode, we can infer from here, shimlo techata, um, that, that if you don't sin with those sins, okay, that, that refer to kares, shetashuv elmalona, then the soul will return back to where it came from. El makom asherhayasham ahalo betzchila, to the place where it was encompassed earlier. Okay, Venira shall fine. Um, okay, so let's 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 pause for a second. Let's just understand what the Ramban's saying. The Ramban's saying he's flipping the whole question on his head. He says Olam Haba is the most obvious thing in the world. What is Olam Haba? As we said a moment ago, Olam Haba is your neshama connecting itself to God. Fundamentally, that's what Olam Haba is. If you believe in a soul, which the Torah does acknowledge a soul, then it makes sense that the soul will return to God. That that's logical. Not only is it logical, the Torah implies quite explicitly that that's the case because it says if you sin, your soul won't be reconnected to God, which means that if you don't sin, your soul will be maintained and connected to God. So clearly there's an afterlife. Clearly there's an Olam Haba. Clearly our Neshama is connected to Hashem. He says, you know why it doesn't mention that in the Torah? Because it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Of course, our soul is connected to Hashem. You know what's not obvious? In if you do my mitzvah, it's going to rain? That makes no sense. Tell me which rules of nature, which rules of, bio, whatever, of, uh, I don't know, whatever, I don't know what you learned these things from, from, whatever class, but whatever, geology or something would tell you that it's going to rain, it's going to be a nice day, it's going to be good for you if you do mitzvahs. That makes, that's, that's insane. That's wild. That's wondrous. That, that, there's no logic to tell you, and therefore the Torah has to tell you, right, that these things are going to happen. But the, the Ramban doesn't deal with why are we getting sub-reward in this world. He's just dealing with what the Torah says and what the Torah doesn't say. The Torah is going to tell us the wondrous things. Do mitzvos, you get reward in this, you know, that it rains, that's wondrous. Do averos and all of a sudden the bad things happen, that's wondrous. But that our neshama continues on, it says, davar pashut. It's completely, completely obvious. What do you all think of that? You got, making sense? Clarification? We're good? I have to tell you, the last four times I lost something, I said, Hashem... Okay, so first of all, you're a very holy person. I'm one of, I'm, I mean that sincerely. Second, I'm, I'm serious. Second of all, you know, tzedakah is the only time, only time explicitly, you know, this whole discussion about we're not supposed to get reward in this world. Tzedakah is the only mitzvah where the Torah says that you're allowed to test me. You're allowed to test God, so to speak. You say, I'm going to give tzedakah and God, you got to do this. Pretty interesting. We're not going to time and place to discuss that, but, but it's a good idea. It's a good idea. I don't promise it first. First, I look. Right, I right. Look for about 15 minutes, I'm tired. Hashem, please find it. I'll give it to the doctor. And it works. Fantastic. Keep keep up the good work. Okay, let's go <laughs> let's go a little further to the fourth approach. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, Hadassar of The fourth approach 
is like this. And this comes from the Kuzari um, and Rabbeinu Nisim. Lefi, shebiyamim hahem, hayukola olam machishim hashkachas Hashem misbarach. He says, in those days, okay, let's just, before we even read these words, we have to appreciate, the Torah is eternal. The Torah is given to you and me in 2023. The Torah is relevant and it doesn't change. Okay, that said, it was given at a certain time. It was given at a certain time. And so there are those, this is not appreciated by, or not agreed upon by all, but who say that although the laws of the Torah are immutable, they don't change. If God said you have to keep Shabbos back in the day, you have to keep Shabbos today, regardless of how difficult it is with technology, it doesn't matter. Shabbos today is the same Shabbos as it was back then. But the language that's used, the imagery that's used, the, the, the themes that are mentioned are ones that take into account of the, what the ancient world was at the time of the giving of the Torah. Okay, this is something that, this is a novel, a bit of a novel idea. The Kuzari and Rabbeinu Nisim are saying that when Hashem gave the Torah, the laws, they don't change, but Hashem was speaking to people in, you know, what is it, 4,000, whatever it was, 4,000 years ago or so, right? So he's speaking to them in a way that resonated with them based on the things that were going on in the world around them, okay? You have to know your crowd, so to speak, right? That, so it's, it's a bit of a mechudash idea. It's a pretty novel idea to say that the language is, is unique to the people living in that time. With that in mind, he says like this. He says, in, those wor- in that time, they rejected the notion that God really, um, what we call divine providence, hashkacha, that God is aware and takes care of us as individuals. And they argued, anything that happens in the world, it just has to happen. Okay. Um, okay, so okay, so and it wasn't done willfully. In other words, they believe that whatever happens is just nature running its course. If it rains today, it's because it's uh, you know because of the cloud formation. If you stubbed your toe, it's because of the fact that you walked. If you got a person, you haven't forbid something terrible happened. It's because nature, statistics, and the same for the good. That's what the main belief of the world was back then, which frankly is. Probably you'd say the majority of people believe the same thing today. There's a good chunk of time where many people, most of the world was religious. We've, you know, it was, you know, we've, we've kind of, unfortunately, we're no longer in that time. So what he's saying is describing something which I think we can relate to. If you ask most people, why did something good happen to you or these people? Eh, luck, whatever, nothing. No reason, no reason, right? So, Therefore, God wanted to make true, make real, uh, this notion of divine providence, hashkacha. Through these promises, that people see, that people who do God's will, God wanted to make it clear to everyone that no, God is involved in this world. Okay, so what does he do? He says, if you do what's right, good things are going to happen. And all of a sudden you see the Jewish people are all doing what's right. And good things are happening to them, right? Fine. So, so he says, that's why, that's why God wrote in the Torah only the physical rewards and not the spiritual rewards. He wrote the physical rewards because he wanted to teach the world that when we do what's right, good things will happen, do what's wrong. And, and again, the cruisery goes on to say that, that after the destruction of the base of Migdash, this was no longer the case. And even towards the end of the destruction of the first base of Migdash. But you look at the book of Amidbar. We're going to start by Midbar next week, okay? Look in the book of Amidbar, and really through most of the Nevi'im, the Jewish people do what's right, good things happen. They do what's wrong, crazy fires, earth opens up, it's all over. Look at the book of Shoftim, okay? Early time in the land of Israel. What happens? It's literally, I could sum up the entire book of Shoftim in two sentences. The Jewish people did what's right, God saved them, they did what's wrong, it was terrible. That's the entire book, 
right? Like literally, exactly what we're reading in these parshios. When you do what's right, it'll be peaceful. You'll be prosperous. When you do what's wrong, bad things will happen. And that pattern was followed, at least in the early times, for whatever reason, we're not going to get into right now, after the destruction of the base of English, we no longer have that reality. But he says, God did this, God focused on this, in order to teach the Jews, especially, but everyone, that God exists in the world. People do not believe that God, or what they believe to be the gods, or whatever, really cares or has any attention on the world, right? Many in the ancient world believe that, you know, the, the gods were fighting up in the heavens and we were kind of stuck in the middle, right? You know, they were praying like, the gods of the water, don't, don't allow us to get in the way of your stuff, right? But they didn't believe that God, the gods cared about their actions, their deeds. And, the, you know, so, so God wanted to educate us and the world that God does care about your actions and your actions and your actions, that it matters. And the way to do so was by promising physical things to show us, hey, you do what's right good things are going to happen. And for hundreds of years, really a thousand years or so, that reality existed for the Jewish people. Okay? Now he, now he goes on to the next thing. He says, He says, Had God given or promised them spiritual reward, they would still be uh, heretics. They wouldn't believe uh, that, that God pays attention to them. A person who wants to lie then what do you do? You promise something, uh, you know, I, I'll give you something, you know, if you want to, you know, if you have little kids or whatever it is, we'll, we'll talk about another, uh, uh, well, maybe I'll give it to you, uh, remind me tomorrow, next week, a month, whatever, depends how old the child is, right? Okay, and then it pushes it off and you never have to do it, right? So had God promised to give spiritual reward, it's very easy to promise spiritual reward. <laughs> it's free. I could promise you all the spiritual reward in the world right now, right? You have no way, uh, there's no accountability. When a person dies, did, the, did it happen? Did it not happen? Right? So it doesn't prove anything, right? Um, right? So, and, and without getting into other religions, but many other religions do focus on the reward in the next world, right? God wanted to say, it's easy to promise reward in the next world. God wanted to make it clear that he exists and that he cares about us as individuals. And therefore, he had to promise us, he wanted to promise us things in this world to show us, hi, I'm here and I see you. I see what you're doing and I care about it. To promise Olam Hava doesn't, doesn't change us, doesn't, doesn't teach us how important we are in God's eyes, in Hashem's eyes, okay? That's his understanding why, in that's why physical things are re- related and not spiritual things, because it's cheap, it's easy. It doesn't help anything to promise spiritual things, okay? Um, okay. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, we could, let's just, okay, let, let's, 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 uh, let's turn the page, let's jump to the Hadassah Hamishas, the fifth approach. Hadassah Hamishas, see, the fifth approach is, Shekodem Kabbalah Satora, Okay, this next approach almost is completely opposite in their historical understanding from the last approach. This next approach is written by Rav Sadia Gon. Rav Sadia Gon lived about, about a thousand years ago. He was the greatest of that, of that era. Um, he, he wrote really the first organized Jewish book of philosophy, okay? Um, and he addresses all the big questions, okay? His understanding of the, the historical period of when the Torah is given is the opposite. He says, no, back then, everyone believed that their God is going to, that if you do what's right, you pray to your God, that God gives you, you know, certain things. God will, that God will give you a uh, good life and will give you produce and will give you rain and will give you safety, whatever it is, okay? That's her, so he says, that's what all the gods were promising. You ask the Egyptians back 4,000 years ago, what, what's the purpose of your God? We pray to this God and he makes the, the Nile overflow. We ask the Midianites, what are you doing with your God? We pray to our God and he makes sure that we find some water in the desert. Every God, you know, they prayed to the God to get what they wanted, right? That was how they, they believed things, okay? Again, he's suggesting something almost like opposites from the last approach, okay? So he says like this. He says, since that's the case, he says, um, okay, he says, okay, and when God gave us the Torah, 
Uminaam min osan avodos, and, and said, you can't serve idols anymore, right? The Jewish people, as we know, Chazal tell us, they were serving idols like everyone else was, right? Uh, the, the Chazal tells us that when the Jewish people came to the Yamsuf, uh, they came to the, the, the sea, and uh, God told the sea to split. The Midrashim, like, uh, dramatizes them. The, the sea says, Halalu ovdi avodozara, the halalu ovdi avodozara. The Jews are servers of idols, and the Egyptians serve idols. Why should we split for the Jews? They're just as bad as the Egyptians. Okay, that's what the Medrash says, right? God ultimately says, too bad. You split for the Jews. That's what I'm telling you to do. But, but the point is, the point is that there is, the Jews served idols because they wanted, you know, we want success. So you serve this idol for this type of success. That idol for that type of success. And now God's saying you can't serve idols, right? So, so and it's going to be very hard for them, right? They're dependent on these idols, right? You can't go ahead, you know, uh, if you're trying to change a behavior, right? I don't know, whatever that behavior is. You know, you know, whatever it is, you have to think about, like, what's this behavior, you know, helping me with? And uh, for, I'll give you myself as an example, right? So uh, I, I used to drink a lot of coffee, a lot of coffee. I probably will go back to one day. It's very hard. I, a ton of coffee, okay? To keep me going, to keep me energized throughout the day, okay? At one point I said, this is really unhealthy. I have to scale down, okay? Less coffee, okay? But less coffee means I'm going to be more tired. So what I need to do? Sleep a little more, right? I have to take my, my sleep a little more seriously if I don't want to be drinking this much coffee, right? You can't go ahead and take something away without giving something else in its place, doesn't work that way. People try to curb a bad habit. If that's what, where's this, what's this bad habit doing for me? And when I curb that habit, I have to give something else, positive, healthy, you know, appropriate, to fill that void, right? So Hashem is basically saying, idols that you're all serving, no more. And the Jews are like, huh? Well, how am I going to get brain? How am I going to get uh, peace? How am I going to get a good life? Etc. So Hashem said, God had to promise them that through keeping the Torah, those promises, those things the idols promise you, God says, I'm the creator of the world. I got this. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you, right? And God says, not only that, but if you continue serving them, I'm going to take those things away from you because I'm actually the master of the world. Okay, so basically saying the reason God focuses on the physical rewards is because God was, so to speak, weaning the Jews off of idolatry. Idolatry wasn't about the spiritual practice per se. It was about the physical benefits, the material benefits that idolatry gave them. And therefore, if Hashem's saying you can't serve those idols, Hashem's saying, well, don't worry. I'll take care of all those things. You're not going to drink coffee? I'll give you some sleep. I'm not, you're not going to get it from the idols? I'll give you something else. And I'll take care of you instead. And if you continue serving those idols, it's actually going to be worse for you, right? But the reward in the world to come, not to promise them, because God says, don't serve the idols, serve me. You know, the idols also promise some world to come. Maybe yes, maybe no. Kind of similar to that last answer. God wasn't taking anything away when he said, serve me. Olam Haba was true for the idols. Olam Haba is going to be true for you as well, right? So that wasn't changing, okay? And this is the approach of Rasad Yagon. Again, so let's just summarize this approach. Rasad Yagon saying that similar to the last approach, that God was speaking to the people who received the Torah. And he says like this, that they were, being, they, that they were no longer able to serve idols and get all the benefits. And therefore God says, well, I have to give you something I have to say. Therefore, I'm going to take care of the benefits. Olam Haba wasn't a question for them. They weren't questioning, will we get reward in the world to come? Because... That, that didn't change. There was no change in that regard. And that's why it's only in regards to this world type of reward that Hashem had to give them any promises. Okay? Two more approaches. The sixth approach. Okay? Since God said, I will walk among you. And I will place not just my house, but my residence, my presence among you. What does God promise the Jewish people? Right? What, what is the base of Migdash? The base of Migdash, the temple, was a place where you could see and feel God's presence in this world. Right? We get like a, an inkling of an inkling of an inkling when we come to the Kosa. We stand there, we feel that 
that, that's like uh, the tip, 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 tip of what the base of Megdash was. The base, there was open miracles. There was, there was clouds of, you know, there was a fire hanging over the Mizbech. You saw God, not literally, but you felt God, you knew God was living among you. And that God tells them he's going to do. Okay? So he says like this. Once God said, Okay, God's telling you that you're going to have a connection to Hashem, even in this world. In this world, when our soul is entrenched in the material, in the physical, right? Our soul, where's your soul? You know, you can't see it. You can't feel it. Our soul is stuck in this physical world. And nonetheless, Hashem's saying, I'm connecting to you. I'm going to have a relationship with you in this dark, physical, material world. I'm able to connect to you. So once God says that, certainly, if God says, I will literally connect to you in this physical world, then certainly, when our soul leaves our body, will the soul be able to connect to God? Of course. In this world, when we have our physical bodies with all their physical needs and, our, all, our phys- and all our material and moral deficiencies, God says, I'm still going to connect to you. Despite the fact that it's a material, dark world, okay? And, and it's not a spiritual world, but God says, I'm going to have my presence among you. That's what God says. Shem says, I will bring my, connect, I will connect to you on this earth. So when our soul is no longer connected to the body, do you have any question that the Deshama, our soul, will be able to connect to Hashem? It's obvious. Because if God's able to, so to speak, get through this physicality and connect us here, certainly he'll be able to connect us in the next world, right? A little philosophical of idea, but it's a beautiful idea. He says, He says, all the promises given by those false religions, which promise all these great things after death, right? Think about your other religions. All these great things are going to happen. After you die, you're going to have, I don't know, all these different things, right? He says, Yada God says, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to tell you you're going to have it in the next world. I'm going to tell you you have it right over here. I'm going to tell you you're going to have all those great things here. And prophecy, which was found amongst the Jewish people, Tochiach proves this. Okay? Uh, why? What is prophecy? So we spoke about this so many times before. Right? One, one, one very important point about prophecy. Prophecy is not what we're often... When we think about Nevuah, what do we think about? We think about telling the future. When someone says, a prophet, right? Am I a prophet? When, in the vernacular, when we think of prophecy, we think of someone who could tell the future. Someone who could tell you what's going to be. That's not Judaism's perspective of prophecy. What prophecy is, is a connection of a person to Hashem in this incredibly deep way. It's somehow our neshama is able to connect to Hashem. In that process, by connecting to Hashem, Hashem transcends time. Okay, I become aware of things that are going to happen in the future. Sometimes Hashem communicates with me. But the ikr, the fundamental idea of prophecy, is that we, in this world, are able to connect to something incredibly spiritual. You know, the Rambam writes that, uh, you know, that, that when a person experiences prophecy, it's like you would watch a person, if you've ever seen someone uh, like, have a, like, a, uh, like with epilepsy, you know, basically like having like convulsing, etc., uh, seizures, etc. Like, so it, it was, it, a person who experienced prophecy had that experience. Why? Because it was like, you know, you see this in like comics. I don't know if this is in like real life. You ever like stick like a, you know, something uh, into a, you know, a, a fork into a, into electric, uh, into whatever, into a plug, right? So like, in, in at least in the comics, versus like shaking, uh, whatever it is, you know, that's what it is. It's basically connecting to this high voltage of spirituality and we're not capable of it. That's why prophets only experience prophecy while they were sleeping, when their body is already like kind of subdued or that they, it was overwhelming. The only exception, of course, is 
Moshe, I'm going to speak face to face, but that's unique. Most prophets weren't on the spiritual stature, and yet they're still connecting to Hashem in that intense, intense way. But prophecy really is what Olam Haba is. It's about deep connection to Hashem. So this is the Kuzari, the following idea. If we can connect to Hashem in the world, in this world, despite our physical bodies and all our blemishes and all the stuff, we're stuck in this world, and we can connect to Hashem, Hashem brings His presence to the base of Migdash. He communicates to us. We're mamish connected to Him. Certainly, when our soul is no longer stuck to this physical world, for sure we'll be able to connect to Him. And therefore He says, it's obvious. It's obvious that there's Olam Hava. God is telling us there's Olam Hava on earth. But there's Olam Haba here. If you can experience Olam Haba here, certainly there's going to be Olam Haba in the world to come. And therefore, that's his approach explaining why there's no mention of the world to come in the Torah. Got it? Makes sense? Okay. I hope, I apologize. We'll, we'll get back a little more textual next week, I hope. But, uh, you know, as this, but, but this is a little philosophical. This is a very important question. A very important question. One more, one more approach. Hadassah Shviz, the seventh approach. Shekolhi Udim Aniskar Torah. Okay, a fascinating approach from the Seferi Karm. He says, all the promises in the Torah... Are meant for the masses. For the masses. Because the world is judged according to the majority. The promises the Torah has for rain, for produce, for peace, are for the Jewish people as a collective. But the reward of in the world to come, that is unique to the person. Each individual according to Nidon. Each person is judged according to who they are. According to their deeds. So what he's saying over here is very profound. This to me addresses the question the most, uh, to me the most, in the most comprehensive fashion. The Torah says, If you follow my mitzvot, I'm going to make it rain. Okay? That's what the Torah says. Let's say, let's say, okay, back when the basement was standing to make things simple. Let's say 99% of the Jewish people were keeping mitzvot and 1% of the Jewish people were not. Would it rain? Let's assume yes. Majority of people are doing mitzvot. The answer is yes. Now, when it rains, is it going to rain like on the 99% and the 1% won't have rain? No, that's not how rain works. Rain, it's going to rain on everyone, okay? And the same is going to probably be true for 80% of the Jewish people. If the majority of them are doing mitzvot, they're going to get all those rewards. He says, when the to- in Bichukosai Telechu, he says, you know the rewards in the Torah? Those rewards are only about the collective because peace in the land. You know, you can't distinguish, is there peace, it's going to be peace for you, but not peace for you. It doesn't work that way. If there's peace for the land of Israel, it's going to be peace for everyone. If there's not peace, it's going to impact everyone. You can't distinguish, right? So he says, the reward and punishment in the Torah is always for the collective. It's always mentioned, by the way, as many commentators, that's in the plural, right? It's not in the singular, right? Um, All the reward and punishments that's listed in the Torah is true for Klal Yisrael, for the collective of the Jewish people. Okay, the reward, and that's, and that's, he says, and so therefore, again, he's addressing the question from a bit of a different angle. He's not addressing why it's not mentioned in the Torah, but he's telling us, when you read these passages, when we read these passages, like we're going to this week in Shul, and it says it's going to rain, that doesn't mean that if you, an individual, do a mitzvah, it's going to rain for you. You're going to win the lottery. You're going to be healthy. It doesn't work that way. The physical rewards, those are God judges us as a klal, as a people, and rewards or punishes us as a people. Scary thought, because we live in a world where most Jews right now are not doing mitzvot, right? Um, you know, so that's a scary thought. How is God judging us as a collective? Okay, but at least in principle, the, no, the idea is that God is looking at us as a collective and saying, in if you guys all do, if you, all the Jewish people do my mitzvot, I'm going to bless you. If things are not going to go so well, I'm not going to bless you. All the physical rewards in the Torah are, are mentioned. And, and therefore, by the way, that means that when we get those physical rewards in this world, um, they don't detract 
from our ultimate reward in the world to come. Because one is the reward, the, one is, uh, there's two tracks. One is the collective. How does God respond to us as a people? As individuals, that's going to be custom tailored. In the world to come, you can distinguish. You, yes. You over here. You over there. You over there. Every person, their own exact place in the world to come because each person is going to be rewarded or punished exactly according to their precise deeds. But in this world, things are in generalities. The way God treats us as a collective, and that's all the reward and punishment mentioned in this week's, in, in, in this week's parsha and all the other parshios. Okay, so... Again, not a story today. I apologize, but, uh, but, but such a fundamental idea. I'll just mention, I'll just say this out loud, you know, paraphrase this. But the Kliyakar finishes this whole discussion. He points out, he says, who are the greatest observers? Of, who are the people who are elevated as the most, uh, you know, uh, observant, uh, devoted servants of God? You know, if we were to think, if who are the most devoted servants of God in the Torah, who would you list? Kohanim, like individuals, particular individuals. Who would you list? Who's your top three individuals who serve God? Like, unbelievably. Hey, Moshe's up there, presumably. And the Avos, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, right? Okay. Ask the Kliyakar, how'd their life go for them? No, Avram. He lived in a tent, okay? Some of it was chosen, but he didn't exactly live the high life, okay? Yitzchak, according to some, he was impoverished for most of his life. He had like nothing. He was really on his own. Yaakov, forget about it, right? Yaakov. Yeah, sorry? Yeah, exactly. Yaakov had a terrible life. So let's understand this. The Torah is speaking about people which it elevates, right? Over and over again and throughout the rest of the books. Avos, I remember the Avos. These are the most important people in the world. Did they get reward in this world? No. So clearly, God is telling us that there is... There, when we talk about reward for mitzvot, it's clearly not in this world because if God wanted to tell us that the reward is in this world, right? Then, and that's the ultimate reward, then the stories of Avram Yitzchak Yaakov should have ended on a very different note. But they do not. They don't finish on a very positive note. You know, according to some, you know, Yitzchak, uh, you know, uh, was kind of buried on his own. Like, uh, you know, there was no one really around, or Rivka, like no one was really around to bury her uh, because, you know, she was in a fight with Esav. Yaakov was out of, uh, out, of, out of the country and she was buried by like strangers. Imagine that. Or uh, Rivka, the great matriarch, you know, is, is basically left, left her, uh, is, is the stories don't end in these beautiful Disney-esque fashion, right? Clearly indicating to us that physical reward is not what it's all about in the Torah, okay? Now we have to ask the question, so why is it not mentioned? And then we have all these different answers, right? But he's saying it's so clear from the Torah's storyline that the reward, the ultimate reward is not in this world because the greatest of greats are not given such great rewards in this world. Clearly, the ultimate reward is in the world to come. So let's quickly summarize some of the approaches. Again, the questions that they were addressing, question and questions was, what's being discussed in this week's Parsha? And why is there no mention of Olam Haba? Right? Why is there no mention of the world to come? Why is the Torah time a physical reward? And why is there no mention of the world to come? So again, the Rambam, easy approach, says... It's the expense account. In B'chukot, God is basically telling you, if you do what's right, I'm going to make it easier for you to do more mitzvahs. You do what's wrong, I'm going to make it harder for you to, to do what's mitzvahs. Do mitzvahs. But it's not the reward. The reward is, is, is not listed at all. Why is it not listed? Because God wants us to serve him for the right reason. God does not want us to serve him for a candy. That's not how an intelligent, sophisticated relationship looks like. It's just not. Okay. The second approach from the Ibn Ezra, he says that it's just too hard. It's just too hard to understand Olam Haba, and therefore the Torah omits it entirely. The third approach from Rabbeinu B'chai and the Ramban is that Olam Haba almost flips the question. He says, Olam Haba is so obvious. He says, of course it's Olam Haba. He says, you know, if you believe in a soul, which, 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 which the Torah does talk about, then the Torah doesn't have to tell you that the soul will live on beyond death and will connect to God. What it does have to tell you is what's going on in this week's Parsha. That's going to rain if you do mitzvahs? That's a novel idea that the Torah has to tell you about. Okay, that's his approach. The fourth approach and fifth approach both assume the Torah is given in the historical context of the time. Okay, so according to the 
fourth approach. Uh, the, the, the idea is that people at that time did not believe that God cares about us as individuals, and therefore God tells us that if you do what's right, I'm going to reward you in this world to show that he cares about it, to show that he's aware of us. And the idea was to educate the Jewish people that God cares about the individual, right? And, and, and we, we were still recipients of that education. You know, we live in a world right now where, where we don't have that type of connection to Hashem. Hashem doesn't reward us immediately for doing a mitzvah. But we have a tradition. We know that for our ancestors that was the case. And that changes the way we know now that even if we don't receive a patch for doing what's wrong immediately, we don't receive a candy or whatever reward for doing what's right, we have a tradition we know and believe that God does still care about our individual action even if we don't see it. But that's, that's why the Torah only focuses on the, the physical rewards. Um, fifth approach Almost the opposite, but a similar approach is basically the, the people were idolaters at the time. The idols were giving them physical rewards. And God, to wean them off of idolatry, had to give them, in Bechukosai, to let them do what's right, I'm also going to give you rewards. It's a way of weaning them off of idolatry. Um, the sixth approach, the most philosophical approach, is that, uh, that God, is, God tells us that in this world, I'll be able to connect to you both through the base of Migdash, through Nevuah, and therefore, for sure, that connection will be maintained in the next world, as it, when, when we're no longer in this physical body. And the seventh approach is to say that all that's mentioned in, this, in the, these partios in, in, in the Torah sections that talk about reward are true for the collective, where it goes by the majority, but individual, and that's, and that's what we're reading, individual reward, that's Olam Haba, and that's just simply not discussed. The Torah is talking to the masses, uh, the individual there we have Olam Haba, uh, but that's not what we're reading over here in these parshios. Okay, so these are a couple of different perspectives, a lot to think about. I hope it wasn't too quick, but a lot to think about in terms of different approaches, in terms of why the Torah doesn't mention Olam Haba. But universally, we all believe in Olam Haba. The only question is why is it not as front and center? We have a whole bunch of different approaches explaining to us why that is the case. But we do believe in reward and punishment. We do what's right. God will do what's good for us, whether it's in this world. Certainly, it's true in the world to come. Um, and again, if you want, feel free to hold on to it. I hope it wasn't too quick. Next week, also, there's no real narrative in the Parsha, so we'll probably spend a little bit of time thinking about an overview of the book of Bamidbar, and then Bamidbar is a very exciting book with a lot of wild uh, narratives, which really, you know, give us insights into others, but also insights to ourselves, so we'll be able to do a deep dive into some of those uh, narratives in the weeks to come. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Good to see you all.